0: Hebrew 6, verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, I must confess to you, you know, I started this passage last week. The more I read it, the more inadequate I feel uh, to preach it. I always feel that way, inadequate to say the kinds of things I'm supposed to say. But I must say, for whatever reason, this particular passage is exhausting me uh, in a good way. But I think there's two more sermons out of it, frankly, just because I, every time I read it, there's just... I can't even seem to get started, but I will. I feel as if I'm scratching the surface with you. Uh, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. My wife's in Florida. <clears throat> she would never let me do this. But I'm just warm and I'm ready to go and so don't tell her. She'll be just... I know right now she's... Well, there's a change in time so at least she's not sitting in church anywhere but she'd, she's feeling this right now. She's at lunch with my parents. I'm sure she's thinking there's something wrong. Something wrong. Fashion wrong. I don't know. Okay, now... What is really important to the author of Hebrews here is this whole idea of full assurance. We started this last Sunday to think through what it means to be people who have, as he says, the full assurance of hope until the end. this is important to him because what's important is he sees this particular church, this particular group of people, is that he sees that they're in, in a measure of spiritual danger. He sees some drifting, he sees neglecting of this great salvation. Uh, he continues to use, it appears, this overlay of the ancient Hebrews when they were in the wilderness and being disobedient and hard of heart and they didn't enter into God's rest and so now, with that in mind, he, he then tells us, in, in the verses we picked up a couple of weeks ago, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, about this situation in which a person will not repent, that they'll fall away to such a degree that they won't repent. And, and he says all of that. Uh, and so what, what's really important to him here is that, that, that the day that we persevere to the end. And, and notice how he puts it here. In verse 11, he says, "And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness." So there's some sense of passion, zeal. Uh, we can even say, "Work at this." Uh, each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. He said, "That's so important that that you need to concentrate uh, so much attention to it that it's called earnestness." I love the word earnestness because you feel it is earnest. You know, you feel there's a sense of of uh, of work here of of, of passion, of intentionality. Show the same earnestness to have what we've been talking about, this full assurance of hope until the end, so that, and I'm not sure if there's a so that in the NIV, but but there should be, uh, so that you may not be sluggish. He says, I want you to be earnest about this so that you have this full assurance of hope and those working together will keep you from being sluggish. And instead, you'll be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so, it's of such great value to see to, to have this full assurance of hope so that we can imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There seems to be something very closely tied together between this full assurance of hope and this ability to persevere to the end. And persevering to the end is of great importance. Remember the words of Jesus. He said, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And we remember the parable of the soils or the sower that he told. And and there's those two soils in the middle that give us trouble, that bother us. Because because the seed is sown, the word of God is sown on the rocky soil and the thorny soil. And and something comes up and it looks really good for a while. But but then it it dies away. And we read that and and, and it plagues us. Uh, Why did it die away like that? Why didn't it hold fast? And so the author of Hebrews is after getting us, getting them to hold fast to their confession. Now, he seems to have a great deal of confidence, a great deal of assurance in their salvation. Notice how he puts it in verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, that is, we've talked about falling away, we've talked about drifting, we've talked about neglecting and all of that, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure uh, of better things. We feel sure of better things, So he has, he has assurance for them. And so now he wants them to have this full assurance uh, of hope. So the question for us is, is, what is this? What is this full assurance of hope? And we, we began here last week. So let me just give you just a bit of a catch-up here. It probably takes me so long to preach this because I preach every sermon one and a half times, or maybe one, 20%. But, but here it goes. Just very quickly. This full assurance. Well, full assurance means a confidence, a complete confidence, an unshakable confidence. Full assurance of hope, an unshakable confidence that that for which we hope will come to pass. That good which God has promised will in fact come to pass. Now, He doesn't exactly in this passage tell us what this exact hope is. But we can speculate, and I think in a good way, uh, about a few things. Number one is he says that he he feels sure of them, uh, sure for them, that there will be these things that accompany, things that belong to salvation, will be true of them. And so, what belongs to salvation? Uh, and, and he's he sort of rehearsed these things in a positive and a negative kind of a context throughout the letter so far. For instance, in, second, in the second chapter, in verse 3, he talks about them escaping. And so a person who has this full assurance of hope would have the confidence to escape the wrath of God. Uh, then in uh, chapter 2, and verse 10, he says, For it was fitting that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory, and so someone who has this full assurance of hope is one who is confident that he or she is part of that group called these sons who are being brought to glory. That is, that you have this confidence that, yes, uh, I will inherit the promises, yes, I will go on to glory and be with Christ. Uh, then he says in verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. So, so this full assurance of hope would mean that a person is confident that he or she is set apart by God, sanctified, and going through a process of being made holy. So there's this confidence that, that what I'm experiencing now, even in the context of struggle with temptation or whatever that might happen to be, is a good struggle because I know that this is sanctifying me. I really, if, if, if there was an English word, I would transfer, tra- translate that word for sanctify into holify. Uh, making me holy, uh, and so we can we can we, we know and have the hope that whatever is going on in the context of our life, even if it's difficult, God is using it to sanctify us, to holify us, to make us uh, holy. Then, in, in in the middle of that in middle to the end of that chapter, verses 14 and 15, he talks about the work of Christ being such that he frees us from this slavery to the fear of death. So. Someone who has this full assurance of hope would be a person who is confident that when he or she dies, everything will be okay. That they won't be condemned, but received into the very presence of God. The full assurance of hope. Of hope. It goes on to speak of Jesus as the one who's made propitiation for sins. So a person who has the full assurance of hope is a person who lives confidently that his or her sins have been propitiated, that is, paid for, so that God's wrath is taken away, so that there's no case against us in heaven. So that full assurance of hope, I'm one whose sins have been propitiated, speaks of Jesus as one who is able to help those who are being tempted. So a person who has the full assurance of hope lives in the confidence that Jesus now lives to help us. So when we call upon his name, what we will receive is help. Not condemnation, not rejection, but help. And so we can can receive that help uh, as it comes. In chapter 3, in verse 6, he speaks of holding fast to our confession. So a person who has this full assurance of hope, is one who wakes up confident that in this particular day, no matter what happens, I'll be able to hold fast to my confession. That's part of this hope. That's part of one of the things that belongs to salvation, holding fast to this confession. Uh, in in the in end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, he talks about entering into God's rest. That is entering into uh, this peaceful place of eternal life. A person who has this full assurance of hope is a person who lives confidently that that day will come. That that person will enter into that rest of God. At the end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, he talks about moving on to maturity. Again, a person who lives in the full assurance of hope is a person who expects confidently to be in the process of maturing before God. All of those things are true, I suspect, of a person who lives in this full assurance confidence of hope. These things which accompany salvation, belong to salvation, will be true in our lives. We could also think about it like this. Our salvation has a number of different dimensions, all of which a person who lives in full assurance of hope is confident in, confident that these things relate to him or to her. For instance, there's a legal dimension To our salvation. A legal dimension to our salvation. Because there is a law. And anytime there is a law. We have a legal situation. And with this law. Comes to us condemnation. But in the context of our salvation. We know. That Christ has paid the penalty of the law. And fulfilled the law. For us. So a person who has the full assurance of hope. Lives in the confidence. Of justification. Confidence that his or her sins have been forgiven. Confidence that God, and this is just amazing, but God looks upon us and declares us, says about us that we are justified, that we are righteous in his sight because of Christ. So, full assurance of hope, you live in the confidence that you're justified. There is also a relational aspect to our salvation, so that a person who has this full assurance of hope lives in the confidence that now that person is rightly related to God, that God accepts us, that that God has been reconciled to us, that God has adopted us into his family, that he is now rightly to be called our father, so we understand in the midst of that living this full assurance of hope. That whatever comes our way doesn't come by way of judgment, if it's difficult, but by way of fatherly, loving discipline. And that as our Father, because we're rightly related to Him, then He hears us when we pray and helps us when we're in need. Not only that, but the relational aspect of this salvation goes beyond just us and God because it includes us and us. You know, when we celebrate communion, we're celebrating our common union. Our common union with God, and we're also celebrating our common union with each other. Because this salvation brings a uniting of us, not only to God, but to each other. So a person who lives in this full assurance of hope lives confident that he or she is part of this community of faith, part of this community of believers in Christ, part of this community that's based on God's covenant promises, part of this community that's based on the gospel. And so we're together in this. And so a person who lives in the full assurance of hope understands that home is here with each other. There's not only a legal and a relational aspect to our salvation but there's also a transforming aspect to our salvation. That is, that as people who have the full assurance of hope, we trust that at every moment in time, God is transforming us. God is spiritually forming in us His very Son, and the image of His Son, Christ. And thus, what will come out of us is what the Scripture calls the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of God's Spirit at work in us, so all the time transforming, as I said a minute ago, that we can then know that whatever we're going through at any one point in time isn't coming to us by way of condemnation or judgment from God, but coming to us to mature us, to grow us, so that we can be transformed into the image of Christ. And fourthly, finally, this salvation is also, also has an eternal dimension that is, it doesn't end. That it doesn't stop. That we're secure in Him. And that a day will come when we will actually be glorified. That is, that we will actually be completely transformed, not into God, but into human beings that perfectly reflect Him just as we should. So the person who lives in the full assurance of hope is a, perfect, a person who anticipates one day, with confidence, being glorified. Now Breathe. I know I just preached eight sermons, but, but, but you, need, uh, you need to just right? pray for me. One of the things I'm going to try to do next week uh, is, is complete uh, manuscripts, write out the last five sermons and put on the website because I know they've been dense. <laughs> sorry. And so, uh, I know you get tapes and stuff and listen to those, but this might help you to have them this way. If it's helpful, good. Uh, if not, I just need to do this for me, frankly, just to get them out of my system. But, uh, or maybe into. But, um, so pray for me about that. I know they've been dense, so all this information might come back to you in written form in a way that you can, can rethink. But I think it's good to catch it all at once. That's what it means, I think, to have this full assurance of hope. The second question we asked last Sunday, Is it reasonable to think that we could ever have such a thing? Uh, And to answer that question, remember, I, I made a distinction between the objective security of our salvation and the subjective assurance of our salvation. One is objective, the other subjective. Objective meaning it has happened and it's done and secure. The other is... Do we experience that? Are we able to be confident and have that full assurance of hope, confident that it really is done in the context of our lives? Another, I gave you a bad illustration last week of this. Let me give you another bad one. Uh, It's sort of like being on a roller coaster. Uh, Technically, the engineers will say, you are safe. But you know what? There's always one hill where you're doubting their word. Uh, as to whether or not you're really safe. And there's a sense, you see, is you can be actually objectively secure, but the question then is, are you experiencing that assurance? Do you really know that? And, and, and the truth of the matter is that there are believers who struggle in the area of assurance. In fact, I would venture to say that from time to time, all of us wonder. All of us begin to, th- all of us think, am I really saved? Am I really one accepted by God? I, if you can track your spiritual journey, I would suspect that for 98% of us, we can find moments along that continuum where we're wondering, where we're less sure than we've other times been. Let me give you some glimpses into history. Charles Spurgeon, who was probably the greatest preacher of the latter part of the 19th century. Some people would try to make the argument that he's the best preacher of all time, but i I don't know about that, but he certainly was uh, the grandest, most effective even, it appears, preacher of the latter part of the 19th century. Went through a great trial in the context of his own ministry. It was called the downgrade controversy. Uh, And this was a time when Spurgeon uh, thought, and he was no doubt right if you check the history, uh, that preachers of his day, even in his own Baptist denomination, were downgrading the gospel that they weren't preaching the whole gospel. They were downgrading it, so it was called the downgrade controversy. And it so affected him in the context of his life that he writes this. He says, I felt at that time very weary and very sad and very heavy at heart. And I began to doubt in my own mind whether I really enjoyed the things which I preached to others. It seemed to be a dreadful thing to me to be only a waiter and not a guest at the Gospel Feast. So here's this great, great man, by every measure. But because of the sadness, the weariness, the trial that he was facing at that moment in time, uh, felt himself exhausted and wondering. Uh, John Bunyan, you may know from writing the book The Pilgrim's Progress, this 17th century uh, believer, uh, also, wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And if you read Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, it's rather autobiographical and it sort of covers, we think at least, it's hard to know, and he's not great to tell, the first number of years of, of Bunyan's conversion. But if you read that book, you will find a man who struggles deeply with assurance. In fact, one page you're convinced. He's a believer and he knows it. And the next page you're convinced he's an unbeliever and knows it. Uh, And he's just in and out and in and out and in and out. But it took a while for this maturation process to grow before he he, he knew God deeply enough, personally enough, uh, to have assurance. William Cooper, who was one of the uh, best, I would say, Christian poets of the 18th century, hymn writers, uh, he wrote a hymn that you would know, uh, the first line being, uh, being which, uh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Uh, by the way, I'll, I'll read another one of his hymns in about two weeks. That will be a great blessing to you, but, but you have to wait. Um, I'll read all six stanzas because it will help you. But, um, um, but he suffered deeply with depression. Uh, and here's what his biographer said about him. He said he was naturally inclined to morbid brooding and, and worry. He fell prey to very deep religious doubts and often fell into deep depression. The last decade or more of his life was a period of deep gloom and a settled notion that God had cast him off. Again, he's a man, if you read his life, you will find, that's a Christian. His friends would tell him all the time, no, you really are a believer. You know, your profession is, is, is right, your life is is exemplary as a as as one who would trust in Christ and yet still he struggled with the context of that because his of his own his own temperament you see this lack of assurance is different from unbelief Donald Whitney and let me just plug his book it's called how can i be sure i'm a christian uh, Donald Whitney is a professor at the Baptist seminary up in Kansas City in fact his wife that a women's retreat for us a couple of years ago. But this is this fine little book, um, I think, that you'll find. Um, it's called How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian, if that's something you want to read about. But he puts the difference between doubt and assurance like this. He said, unbelief is unambiguous in its denial of certain things and clear about where it stands. So unbelief is, is unambiguous. It's, it knows it doesn't believe. A doubt is by definition unsure of its position. But doubt may lean in one of two directions. It may be skeptical doubt, leading away from faith and toward unbelief, or doubt that is straining toward faith, but lacking in something. Often what is lacking is a more thorough understanding of of the truth, as pieces of the truth increasingly fall into place, they're wholeheartedly embraced. And that second part, last little line, is no doubt true, but, but there is this sense that many believers struggle at this point, not leaning toward unbelief in their doubt, wanting the assurance, believing, but for whatever reason, there seems to be this barrier of, of this full assurance of hope. In fact... I'll make the case that the author of Hebrews, as, as we get past this particular passage and get into verse uh, thirteen, through the middle of chapter 10 we'll be laying the groundwork of this objective security. Because you see, there is objective security. We are securing Christ. Last week we made the case that, that the, the ground of our assurance or I'm sorry, the ground of our security in Christ is, is God. That He's the one who saved us. That it's His character that guarantees it then it's His promises that back it. And so, given that it's God, then we can be secure in that. A person who is saved really is, because God has done the work. And it's receiving that. It's, it's, it's embracing that. It's trusting that. A struggle for many, difficult for all, I suppose. So why the struggle I mean I've read these great people of history I've uh, we've made mention some of you can, can give me the days uh, in your own history where, where this struggle existed let me give you a number of reasons and let me pinpoint a couple of reasons that were particular probably to this group and then how it is that the author of Hebrews has some confidence that they're saved and we'll be going to about 10 after 12 so just relax the um, I just like to give you a heads up you know just that you know I know that I know what I'm doing um, that's a case you're wondering about that number of reasons number one is the, the existence of false assurance one of the things that plagues us is that we know that there are people who are sure of their salvation in their own minds but they're not saved you remember what I think is one of the most awful passages in all the Bible awful by frankly it's It's scary when these people come to Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. On and on and on. And Jesus turns to them and says, depart from me. I never knew you. That's awful. I mean, to think they were that deceived because they seemed so certain. There are others in the course of of your life, perhaps, and certainly in the course of my life that I know, who are certain that they're going to go to heaven when they die. But when you ask them why they're so certain, they give you all the wrong answers. They say things like, well, because I go to church, because I give money, because I've been baptized, because I joined the church, because I'm generally an all-around pretty good guy. And you go, but what about your sin? And what about the work of Christ? And, what about... and yet, they, 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 they're so peaceful in the midst of that. And, and then you begin to think, well, I'm peaceful, and they're peaceful. So peaceful isn't, isn't the most important thing here. There needs to be a reality to our peacefulness. So, so who's right here? It can't be both of us. We, can't, we shouldn't both be in peace. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's me. It could be, as in the case with Spurgeon, that various trials come in the context of our lives and beat us down. For whatever reason, tire us, exhaust us, make us begin to wonder... If God is really for me, why is this happening in the context of my life? There was a humorous book written a number of years ago for high school students that said, God, if you love me, why can't I get my locker open? Yeah? It's like I prayed for the combination. And it's funny, but, but, but we feel that way in very significant kinds of times. When difficulties come, we begin to think, God, you know, if I really belong to you, if, you, if I really... Am yours, if you really do love me, why am, I experiencing, why am I experiencing this? I wouldn't do this to somebody. So why are you doing this to me? And so we begin to wonder, then maybe I don't really belong to God. Some struggle, I think, and I know every pastor I've ever pulled, we've talked about this. There are some, frankly, who struggle more because of their own personal temperament. We all know. We have friends. We exist. We we, we, In relationship with people, we know that people have different temperaments. If you have more than one child, you know that people have different temperaments because God doesn't give you two kids with the same temperament. Um, They're always different. Once you figure out kid number one, then kid number two comes along, and then you're an idiot again. Uh, Because they change. They're different. Uh, Some are happy naturally, more so. Others less. And so um, some people have a, a certain countenance that's up. Some people... Don't enjoy that kind of countenance. For the people who don't enjoy an up kind of countenance, it's more difficult. It just simply—it just simply is. Richard Baxter, who is a, another old dead guy, uh, once made this statement. He says, "He said a melancholic temperament is the commonest, as he put it, is the commonest cause of struggles with assurance. It's just true. Um, and so there are some that are going to have more difficulty. It appears." Then others, William Cooper was no doubt one of those. Bless him, though he persevered to the end. Sometimes it's comparing ourselves with each other. You know, there are some people we look at as, as super-Christians. We compare ourselves to them and we look at ourselves and we say, well, they're believers, I must not be. And we know that's wrong because the person we should compare ourselves to is Jesus. And if we do that, then we really feel bad. Um, uh, until we begin to look at why he was so good for us. Oh, okay, I trust him. Then we're on the right track, you see. But comparing ourselves to others, others because they you think well if I really have this full assurance of hope I must 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 get this certain buzz this certain this certain kind of feeling, but but the, but that will vary at times and vary in you. It's a conviction. It's a being convinced of. And so whatever feeling that brings to you is is fine. But it's this certainty. It's this surety. It's this yes this is true, is what it means to have the full assurance of hope. Other times it's just a spiritual dry time. Again, if we mapped out our spiritual journeys, all of us can pinpoint times when we felt spiritually dry. If you read through the Psalms, there's a, an interesting recurring expression from the psalmist that goes something like this. God, don't hide your face from me. And that's that time of spiritual dryness, the time when we read the Bible and just like reading the newspaper. Times when we pray and it doesn't seem like anything is being heard. Uh, Times when we're in a relationship with other people and it seems that those relationships are unsatisfying, even though they're Christian, even though they're spiritual and all those kinds of things, just doesn't seem to be happening. And it's moments like that again that we, we, we begin to wonder and our full assurance of hope becomes a partial assurance of maybe... But there's two aspects, I think, that the people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing that's of most significance in this context, in this particular situation to which he speaks. Uh, Number one is living in unrepentant sin. When a Christian is living in unrepentant sin, assurance flees. Uh, because it's times like that you, you really wonder, does God really accept me? Because you see, there's this, this big elephant in the room between you and God. You know, you kneel down to pray, and you want to pray about these 12 things over here. But there's this big unrepentant sin sitting there. And God says, you know, I'd really like to listen to all these things over here, but, but I, this is elephant, I can't, can't see you really. Could, could we deal with the elephant? Could you confess your sin? And you can confess this big thing and let's deal with that and then we can, we can open up in these, in these other areas and, and we feel it too. You see, we feel this elephant in the room too between us and God. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, he says this, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before the Father. The psalmist writes, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you don't hear me. And so, there's this big elephant of unrepentant sin. And, and when that exists, we're living in this, this life of sin, whether it's perpetual lying, whether it's materialism, whether it's sexual sin. You know, I've had a number of people come into my office over the years and say, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but I just don't believe that, that, that God hears me, that, that God is pleased with me. And I begin to talk with them about their life, and we begin to uncover what appear to be pretty obvious unrepentant sins. You know, if you're in the midst of an affair, I can tell you that you shouldn't have assurance of salvation. Okay? If you're sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, you won't have assurance of salvation. It will flee. Okay? If you're living in the context of a lie, the assurance of salvation will flee. And if it doesn't, then you're really living a lie even before God. These things are indicators there. And then there's also just, I think, is happening in this uh, context. It's just a spiritual laziness that is not tending to the things of God. If you live in spiritual apathy, if you live spiritually lazy, if you're not reading the Bible, if you're not praying, if you're not in fellowship, if you're not loving others, if you're not serving uh, the body of Christ, the truth of the matter is, then your, your assurance will flee. If you don't have God before you, and if He is not the one with whom you're captivated in the context of your life, then your full assurance of hope will die. And so you'll become sluggish. You'll become dull of hearing. And you'll begin to neglect the very salvation that you walked in. And so the author of Hebrews now comes to them and said, Listen, ah, be careful. But amazingly, he has great confidence in their salvation. Notice how he puts it, verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he's confident that all these things will accompany them. Verse 10. Here's the basis for his confidence. Gives two reasons. We'll only talk about one today. He says, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Two reasons for his confidence. One is the justice of God. For God is not so unjust. The justice of God. The second is in their uh, lives of working and loving. And and here, depending on your version, you have a little expression in the ESV, it's for his sake. In the NIV, it's the love that you have shown to God, New American Standard, it's the work and love uh, that you showed towards Him, all meaning the same thing, that your initial concentration is on God, that you're working and loving because of Him. And this is an expression of love to Him. And that manifests itself in serving uh, the saints. Now, you remember... I well, don't no, let me go there yet. So two reasons. One is God's justice. He's not going to overlook something. And secondly, how they're living in love to God and serving other believers. Now let's take a look just at this one aspect of God's justice. How is it that God's justice brought assurance to the author of Hebrews about their salvation and brings can bring assurance to us? Because that's rather odd. Normally when we think of God's justice... Uh, we think about his judgment. Normally, when we think about God's mercy and grace, we think about assurance. But here he's saying, no, no, no. It's in the context of God's justice that you can know his assurance. So, so what is there about God's justice? It's something that causes him not to overlook something. It causes him to notice something. So the question is, all right, what's he notice? Well, he notices the work and love for his sake in serving the saints, as they still do. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God looks at people who are loving him and serving the saints and says, I don't need to treat you with mercy and grace anymore. I only need to treat you with justice. So, as long as you continue to love me and serve each other, then I'll give you salvation. But if you stop loving me and serving each other, then I won't. It doesn't mean that. There's nothing in the Bible that would lead us to that conclusion. In fact, even in the context of this passage, it couldn't lead us to that conclusion because the way that you inherit the promises is by imitating those who inherit the promises through faith and patience, not by work. In fact, if that was the standard, none of us would survive because none of us love God or serve others, frankly, that well in order to deserve from God his salvation. So so what does he... What does he mean? What does he see? Well, turn to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 32. I read this last week. This is a defining passage for understanding this church. Hebrews 10:32. He writes, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those uh, so treated. For you had compassion on those uh, in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Question, how did these people serve the saints? They served the saints by loving God. You see, first they loved God. First they gave themselves to Him. And because they did, they had a realization, an assurance, that what they had from God was so satisfying and worth so much, that then they could give up everything else for the saints. because what they already had was of such great value, because first they gave themselves to God. And so what God is noticing in them is what he did in them. Because the only thing that brought them to that point was his very grace. So when God looks upon a group of people that loves him and serves his people, what he's seeing is his own handiwork. What he's seeing is his own grace in action. For instance, first Corinthians and chapter fifteen and verse ten. The apostle Paul writes this, he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. Okay, I'll give you ten seconds to find it. First Corinthians fifteen, verse ten. Come on, come on, come on, come on. People think I preach too long, it just takes you too long to find the verses. 1 Corinthians 15:10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So when God sees us serving, when God sees us working, when God sees us loving Him and serving the saints, what does He see? He sees His grace at work in us. Turn to 2 Corinthians and chapter 9, and verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. It's an amazing statement. All the grace that you need, all grace, all His empowering grace abound. That means Niagara, like Niagara Falls. It means it just pours out upon you. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So, when God sees their work, what's he seeing? He's seeing his grace. And when he's realizing, when he's seeing their work and love for his name, for his sake, what he's seeing, evidenced before him, is not the worthiness of their work, but the worth of his own name. He's seeing the greatness of his own name. And that's exactly what anybody who's loving and serving for God's name, for God's sake, wants them to see just later on in this passage. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 11. Paul writes, You will be enriched in every way for your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see, when a person is working and loving for God's sake... The desire is that God will be seen. The desire is that God will be thanked, not the person. The desire is that God will be seen, not the person. And so what God is seeing when he looks at this group of people uh, is a group of people who have been willing to sacrifice because they are satisfied in God. And they're working and loving for God's sake in serving the saints. And so their desire is is that God be glorified, that God be thanked, that God be shown to be great, and all of their strength and all of their wisdom, in fact, their ability to love, comes from God, and they know it, and that's exactly the way that they want it. And so the author of Hebrews says, listen, this is happening in the context of your lives, I see it. I see the very fact that you're loving like this, and you're working like this, and you're doing it for God's sake. You're doing it towards His name. You're doing it out of love for Him. And therefore, he sees, we all see, we all know that that didn't happen naturally to you, but, but that's a gift. That's God's grace at work in you. And therefore, he'll notice that. And when he notices that, what he does is he says, they're mine. You can rest assured of that. They're mine. Because they love me. And they can only love me if my grace had come to them. And, and they're serving the people I love and the people who love me. So that can only happen if it's the result of my grace. Now, I suppose if I were really crafty, what I would do now is make a long list of all the things we need at Grace CPC and all the different ways you could love each other. Um, uh, In the nursery, you know, we need people to work in the nursery, Sunday school classes, uh, you know, we'd like to build a sanctuary. Now's the time to pass the plate, I'm sure. Uh, then we'd have to pull those things off the wall. Um, But of course, that isn't what this is about at all. What it's about is focusing our attention upon God, that we might love Him. And then whatever falls out of that, which is already prescripted by God, We'll learn learn next week. What falls out of that, which is already prescripted by God, will be good and simply more evidence. Because you see, we're to work and love for His sake. And if ever we get the two confused, as I read to you during the offering time, we must first give ourselves to God and then to each other. And he says, come to me, focus your attention upon me, pursue me, be earnest about loving me. And in the context of that, this assurance begins to flow. And so for people who struggle with assurance, the recommendation, the command, the exhortation, the insight is this, pursue God. For the people who don't struggle with assurance, the exhortation, the command is, pursue God. On the one hand, pursue God so that the assurance will come. On the other hand, pursue God so the assurance doesn't leave. And again, for those who struggle with assurance, I have to be honest with you, for some it's a lifelong struggle. And therefore, your lifelong ambition must be to pursue God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for me and for us that you would grace us with love for you in such a way that our heart's desire is to see you glorified. That our heart's desire is to receive from you strength so that when we serve, others will see this strength that comes from you and give you thanks. And we trust then from that you will enable us to live in the reality of this assurance. We are justified. We are accepted by you. You are our Father. We are brothers and sisters together. You are transforming us. And this is eternal. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As I do, I remind uh, college students um, and campus ministry people and graduate students, um, stay for the next hour or so for lunch. It'll be a good time. Um, I remind you too that the response to the benediction is this little expression, I shall inherit the promises. Hallelujah. Now, I really thought I was going to get to that expression last Sunday and I really thought I was going to be able to get to it this Sunday. I'll be honest with you, it'll be the week after next. But, uh, keep saying it. Uh, if it's true, for this is your, your declaration of assurance. I shall inherit the promises. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction now to Him, who was able to keep you from falling, to present you blameless before His glorious presence, and that with great joy. To our only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I shall inherit the promises. Hallelujah.